Welcome to the 20-Minute Bible Study, a teaching podcast from Faith on Hill Church in Milwaukee, Oregon. My name's Adam, and while I put 20 minutes on the timer, why don't you open your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 10. With 20 minutes on the clock, in the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died. And his son, Hanun, succeeded him as king. Now David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just as his father had showed kindness to me. So back when David was a fugitive running from King Saul, who was trying to kill him, uh, he had found some refuge among the Ammonites, which wasn't a good season in David's life. But David's trying to do the right thing here. He said, hey, this guy's father showed kindness to me. I didn't have any beef with him. I'm I'm genuinely sad that his father has died. And so I want to show him kindness. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. This is also a smart move too because you want to keep them on your good side. You don't need another enemy. You don't need another fight when you're trying to establish things internally like David was doing. So when David's man came to the land of the Ammonites, verse 3, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanun, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? Now that's silly. David knows what that city looks like. He's been there before. He's lived there for a time. David doesn't need spies to tell him what his own eyes have seen. So they're telling him, hey, David's out to get you. And so Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. Okay, so some of this we understand and some of this we don't. I think all of us understand that what having, if, if you remember, they didn't have like, you know, t-shirts and pants or, or hoodies and pants the way that we do now. You know, they had like more like robes. And so they cut off their robes just above the buttocks. I think all of us can understand, and maybe as kids we had dreams about showing up to school this way. Uh, You know, I certainly had the showing up to school in my underwear dream, right? Like we've all had that. And so we can understand the humiliation of that act. Uh, The humiliation of cutting off half your beard uh, maybe would be less understandable in our culture. Well, what's the big deal? Just shave the other half off. But in their time and in their place, a, a grown man wore a beard and to be clean shaven was a mark of disgrace. Um, it's, it's kind of similar. I, I think the only thing we have even close is if you've ever watched like a World War II movie and the, the allies are liberating a city in France or Belgium um, and then certain women are grabbed and their, their heads are shaved. Um, it was a mark of, of disgrace and dishonor. And so that's what Hanun's men did to the envoys of King David. So verse 5, when David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. And he said to them, stay at Jericho until your beards have grown and then come back. So the men got to the city of Jericho uh, and then messengers go to King David saying, hey, this is what happened to them. It's fair to assume that it wasn't just that they're uh, that they're you know, pants were cut off and they, they had their beard shaven. It's, it's safe to assume that they, they were not willing participants in this, that maybe they were uh, held down. Maybe they, uh, when they were shaven, their faces were cut. They were beaten into submission. Maybe they were abused. Um, you know, everything I read about ancient history indicates that, that they would have likely been molested in some way. 
They were the victims of a lynching. They went in peace. They went on a mission of, of comfort and condolence. Uh, you don't you don't send you know necessarily big you know warriors for this. Maybe maybe there was one or two, but these are probably people who are they have to know enough to speak multiple languages. They were people who could have put on like the most comforting face, and they were treated in a horrible way, and probably worse than we are told here. Um, the Bible doesn't skirt around things. At times, though, it is, we might say, polite about things. So, so David's men are horribly mistreated, and he says to them, hey, stay until your beards have grown back. And you might think, what's he doing? Why is, why is David complicit in shunning them? I think what he's doing is he's giving them safety. When you come back, you will come back looking like men of honor and not men who have been disgraced. You will have time to heal You'll have time to process. I don't know that David would have had the words for all these things. Like we, we talk about processing and, and, and all that kind of thing. I don't think he would have had words for it, but it was the right thing to do. Stay until your wounds are healed. Stay until you have time to recover yourself. Stay until you can come back with a sense of, of dignity. Uh, it's interesting. I was talking to somebody who's done extensive work with the homeless population down in Sacramento. And he said one of the things that they, uh, they, they have this uh, program and, and uh, men and women can come in and get shelter. But he says the, one of the first things they demand is they have to bathe. And he said it's somewhat hyg- about hygiene, right? Like that, you know, we want to make sure that there's, you know, maybe the shampoo uh, has stuff to make sure that they're not bringing in like fleas or ticks or um, what's the, you know, the thing you get when you're kids, right? Um, uh, the, oh, I can't even think of it now. But, you know, the, the thing that everybody gets, and there's, oh, head lice. You know, sure, sure, there's sanitary reasons for bathing. But also, he said, the main reason we, we require bathing is that people get used to being disgusting. People get used to being filthy. People get used to smelling bad, to being just generally in a bad state. He said part of restoring a person's sense of dignity and self-worth is reminding them this is what it is to be clean and this is what it is to to not smell bad and this is what it is to look good. That these kind of things, haircuts and bathing are, are an important step in the process of reminding them of their own sense of dignity. And that's what David's doing is he wants to remind them of their dignity. I appreciate that. Now, Verse 6, when the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Armenians, foot soldiers, uh, Armenian, sorry, not Armenians, Armenian foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobab and the king of Makkah with a thousand men and also 12,000 men from Tob. So they realized, oh, we messed up. And instead of asking for forgiveness, instead of doing something to seek peace, they make it worse. We're going to go hire a bunch of uh, mercenaries and they will, you know, we'll, we'll go show the flag here. So they we're going to show David not to come after us. So then on hearing this, dishonored my envoys. You wounded my men. And now you're hiring soldiers to come at me. So it says in verse 7, on hearing this, David sent Joab with the entire army of fighting men. And the Ammonites came up and drew battle formations at the entrance to their city gate, while the Arameans of Zoab and Reob and the men of Tob and Makkah were by themselves in open country. Uh, okay, so basically, <laughs> the Ammonites—they're—they're uh, they're in their protected city, and their foot soldiers are expendable. So they—they're out in the open country with no protection. When Joab saw the battle lines were in front of him and behind him, 
So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Armenians. So the Armenians are, are in the city. Uh, the hired foot soldiers are out in open country, but they've kind of surrounded, uh, they've surrounded the army of Israel. And Joab said, if the Armenians are too strong for me, then come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to your rescue. Uh, sorry, I skipped verse 10. He put his men, he put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. So what he's saying is, hey, all right, we're surrounded, so we're going to divide in two. And if one side is losing badly, we'll come and support you. And if the other side's losing badly, you'll come support me. Um, Be strong, verse 12. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God, and the Lord will do what is good in his sight. He's saying, hey, you know what? We're surrounded, but we're going to be strong. We're not going to give up the fight, and we are going to trust God to do what is right. Then Joab and his troops with him advanced to fight the Armenians, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites realized that the Armenians were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went into the city. So Joab returned from fighting uh, the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. So basically, the, the, the hired guns, the foot soldiers, run away. And then the Ammonites realize, oh, well, the, the people that we paid uh, to hire us, they've, or to protect us, they've left. So they just go up and wall up their city, and they have uh, Israel has the victory, and Joab returns and came to Jerusalem. And after the uh, Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Uh, Hadiazar, the had the Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River, and they went to Halam with Shobak, the commander of uh, Hadarezi's army, leading them. And when David was told of this, he gathered all Israel. So the, the mercenaries have a problem. You see, their reputation is now bad. So they got reinforcements from across the Euphrates River, uh, and they're going to go take a Israel Israelite city to just kind of like regain their reputation because, hey, we don't want to be known as the people who fled and ran from the Israelites. And then, you know, nobody's going to take us seriously now. Uh, <clears throat> when David was told of this, verse 17, he gathered all Israel and he crossed the Jordan and went to Halam. And the Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. Um, he also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. And when all the kings who were vassals of Hadiezer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. Okay, so God was with David in this rough situation. David sent people to comfort the son of someone who had been a friend to him. David sent envoys of peace, not war, of peace, and they were rejected. Not only were they rejected, but the the Ammonites called out the troops and got ready to make war. So when Joab went to them, it wasn't that he was making war. It was a defensive thing. Hey, these guys are coming to get us. We are going to go meet them on their, we're, gonna, we're not going to let them set the terms of the battle. We're going to go meet them where they're at. And they win. So that should be enough, right? But now the Arameans go, hey, we're looking bad here. We have to keep our reputation. So now they have another battle. So David comes out and brings the whole army and they have another victory. What happens because of this? The Arameans are no longer a threat. They are no longer a threat to Israel. Individually, they were united. They were a united front. Now individually, they are making peace with King David. And the Ammonites don't have any support. 
They don't have any allies. They don't make peace with David, but they have, they're, they're kind of neutralized. Here's what I'm saying is, you know, we talked as we went through the book of Job on Sunday mornings, you go through this season of suffering, you go through this season of hardship, of affliction, of endurance, and you say the storm is going on, you say what is happening? And in the end, not only is there peace, which was David's goal, but a stronger peace. The, the enemies on their borders aren't together anymore. They're scattered. They're neutralized. Peace can, it can ensue for a longer period of time. Trust God to do what is right. I think Joab here was spot on where he said, hey, we're going to fight this fight. We're not going to give up. We are going to do our best. But you know what? We're also going to trust God to do what is right in his own in, in His sight and for him to know what, what ought to be done. And so they had peace there. Now, verse uh, 1, chapter 11, we come to one of the most well-known story. In fact, after David and Goliath, this is the thing David is known for. You don't want to be known for this. Chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel army, and they destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So what David is saying, he has just had this massive victory against the Arameans. But what David is saying is, you know what? I'm not even going to bother. I won't personally give them the respect to show up. And they go out and they lay siege and destroy the Ammonites. The Ammonites who had caused all this trouble, who had, who had made war against them, they said, we are, we're putting them down. But David doesn't go. Now, it says in the spring at the times when the kings go off to war. Why is it the time then? Well, you know, in, in different parts of the world, there are times for war. That's something most Americans are learning again right now is that in Eastern Europe, there is mud season. And basically in Eastern Europe, you can only go to war in the winter when the ground is frozen and you can move or in the summer uh, when the ground uh, has dried out. But in mud season, which happens in the fall, but more in the spring, as all that snow and ice melts and then everything turns to mud, uh, then you're limited. That's why, you know, you'd see at the beginning of the Ukraine war, the Russians would come down that one road because their, their vehicles weren't in good enough shape to go off-road into the mud. So there was a time, there was a time of year, and it was based around... Um, planting your crops because everybody has to eat. So the, the soldiers are also farmers. You got to plant your crops, got to harvest. You don't go to war during harvest because you have to harvest your grain. It was kind of understood. There were times of year you'd go plant your crops, then you'd go off to war, then you'd come back, harvest your cr crops, take a little rest, start over. That was the season for it. David didn't go. He remained in Jerusalem. And it says one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. And David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Job sent him to David and Uriah came to him. And David asked Joab, 
uh, asked about how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with his master's service and did not go down to his own house. David was told Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in the tents. And my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will do no such thing. So David's plan is I'll get Uriah to come home and I'll do it under the guise if he's coming home to report to me how everything's going. And then, hey, why don't you go on home? And he'll do exactly that. He'll he'll eat and he'll bathe and he'll make love to his wife. And then when he finds out his wife's pregnant, he'll think that he is the one. And that's why there's that whole mention of her... Um, of her period, it's not uh, it's not to minimize. You know, sometimes in some cultures, women on on their monthly cycle, it's it's like a a bad thing we don't talk about or something. It's explaining the timeline of events. She's had her period. It could not have been Uriah because he hasn't slept with her after that. He slept with her. He went to war. She had her her monthly cycle. They didn't know a lot about medical science back then, but they knew that much. You, there was a cycle of, of when you could get pregnant. And so it's clear it's not Uriah. So the, David's plan is, all right, Uriah will just think it was him because he goes home, sleeps his wife, goes back to battle, no harm, no foul. But he won't. He won't do it. And he's actually kind of digging at David. The army's there. The ark of the Lord is there. The commander of the army's there. My, my comrades in arms are there. Why aren't you there, David? I'm not going to live in luxury while everyone else is out suffering. So David said to him, stay one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem the next day and night. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. And in the evening, Uriah was sent out to sleep among his master's servants, but he did not go home. So David's theory is if I can just get him to get a little drunk and then he'll wander home and then make love to his wife and it'll all be good. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah and he wrote, in it, he wrote, put Uriah out in the front lines where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw for him so he will be struck down and die. And while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So Joab sent uh, David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king the account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you choose uh, to get so close to the city to fight. Uh, didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Uh, who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Uh, didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from a wall so that he died at Thebes? So what that's saying is, hey, don't you know that that's a bad plan? The king may yell at you. The king may say, like, don't you know history? You get too close to the city wall, just, just like this uh, guy Abimelech, and you will die. Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. This messenger sent out, set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said to say to him. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came against us and opened, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. You get the feeling that the, the messenger is not even going to wait to get yelled at because he may not have time to get the second part of the message out before the king like does something bad to him. So he, he just cuts it off. Oh, by the way, here's the code word. Wink, wink. 
And David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. So basically say to Joab, you're not, you're not getting in trouble for this. And when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And about the time of mourning was over, after the time of mourning was over, David had brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Well, our time is up. So next week we will cover the fallout from this, what it means, what the implications are. But you have to know this thing. God knew what had happened and what he had done displeased the Lord. God is not going to be silent. I want to thank you for joining us for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. New episodes are released on Apple Apple Podcast and Spotify. Video versions are available on our Facebook page. New episodes, uh, as well as all of our podcasts, can be found there. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. for our Sunday morning service. We're currently going through the book of Revelation. My name's Adam. We'll see you again for another episode of the 20-Minute Bible Study. 